Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Nucleus Investment Insights. The topic of the discussion for today is Australian universities and whether they can reform. On the agenda, we'll look at the funding of Australian universities and the breakdown of where those funds come from. Next, we'll ask a question of whether teaching quality has been eroded over the last decade. We'll also discuss whether education really is Australia's fourth biggest export and whether this can be rebooted post-COVID and if this is actually wanted. Lastly, we'll look at university rankings and discuss some ways to improve the system. And of course, as always, we'll cover the investment implications at the end. My name's Sam Kerr, and I'm the Senior Financial Advisor at Nucleus Wealth. As always, we have Head of Investments, Damien Klassen. Damien, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Sam. And we also have Leif Van Onselen, the Chief Economist at Nucleus Wealth. Leif, Leif how are you going today? G'day, Sam. Hello, everyone. G'day, g'day. And lastly, we have a return guest of the show, Salvatore Babones. He's an American sociologist and associate professor at the University of Sydney. He has a new book out uh, on exactly this topic called Australia's Uni Australian Universities, Can They Reform? Salvatore, welcome. Thanks for joining us again. Great to be here. Excellent. Great to have you back. Uh, so just a quick reminder before we get started, if you enjoy our content, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and click the bell below to be notified when we go live or have a new episode recorded. Alternatively, follow us on your preferred podcast platform. Our show's available on all the majors. And for those of you listening in live today, feel free to drop your questions in the YouTube live stream chat, and we'll do our best to answer them during the show. Uh, so now we've got that little bit of housekeeping out of the way, we'll get into things. So Damien, I'll hand it over to you to get us started. Yeah, sure. I just wanted to put a bit of perspective into to why um, yeah, we've got a, an episode sort of focusing on on universities, um, and, and a lot of it's the uh, you know, some of the structural issues and and uh, suggestions about how we can you know how the, how they can achieve some some real and lasting reform from an investment perspective. Um, you know, I look upon the the universities and our current system as being very much an enduring source of, of cheap labour. And, and sort of been holding, um, you know, Leith speaks a lot about, you know, how um, having this a huge flood of, of international students who then end up um, becoming citizens, you know, helps keep our wages a bit, uh, wages low within Australia. And then also, uh, you know, the effect that universities have on, on the real estate market within um, sort of centre center, center of cities. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's one of these themes which, which we want to make sure we've got a a, a view about what's good and what's bad and and if there's what reforms coming down the line as, as we're seeing them and, and and we can see how that's uh, going to affect the Australian economy because they are a very large part of the uh, very large part of the system and as as um, we'll, we'll get into no doubt you know uh, there's uh, some who argue it's the fourth largest uh, one of our fourth largest exports and we'll um, yeah we'll no doubt talk about that so with uh, with that said I'll um, you know, I'll, I'll let Leith and, and Salvatore largely at it, and I'll uh, just throw in a few questions as we go. Thanks, guys. Well, thanks very much, Damien. Uh, great to have you on the show, Salvatore. Um, I've had the great pleasure of reading your book, Cover to Cover. <laughs> and you. uh, you've, you've probably seen I've uh, quoted it quite extensively on macro and business. And, much appreciated. Um, we, look, we, we've basically been sort of moving in parallel uh, for a couple of years. I've been, you know, writing incessantly about the whole international student trade, Australia's universities, right. uh, et cetera. Um, obviously not as well as, you know, research as you are, but, um, and then obviously I first discovered you, uh, <laughs> I first discovered you just before COVID hit when you, when you released that fantastic uh, paper on Australia's addiction to Chinese students. And 
that was, I think, released, I think, in November 2019, um, or thereabouts. Right, September, before, yeah, yeah. September, yeah, and just before uh, COVID hit. So it ended up being, um, you know, obviously we had no idea COVID was coming at the time, so it ended up being, uh, it, it ended up hitting us right between the eyes. Um, and it was, a, you know, a great foreshadowing. And then since then, you've obviously released a few more papers for the Centre for International Studies and, and now the book. Um, the way I thought I'd go about this is because there's obviously a lot in the book. Uh, if it's okay with you, I'll ask you sort of eight questions, which mm-hmm. are areas that I'm interested in, but also kind of parallel to the book. Right. Um, and then, you know, get your views. And obviously you can uh, talk about what, what's, um, what's written in the book, uh, you know, as part of the answers, if that's all right. Um, really? Let's get at it. Yeah, for sure. Now, I guess question number one slash topic number one is this whole issue of whether Australia's universities are really underfunded. Now, I, I went to uni from 1996 to 1999. I didn't, Australia's uh, universities are always underfunded. Leith, don't that's you right. listen to Universities Australia and the group of eight? That's, that, that's right. Absolutely. Well, that that's what I'm getting at. I mean, I went to uni back in the uh, late 1990s, yeah. and I remember... There was all these complaints even back then about you know, not enough funding for universities, blah, blah, blah. And I think, I reckon my entire adult life, that's I've heard this same story trotted out time and time again. And you actually tackle this uh, in your book. And uh, so is uh, Andrew Norton, who's another sort of higher education um, analyst. And both of you have basically come to the conclusion uh, when you actually break down the data that Australia's universities have actually had quite a large increase in public government funding uh, since yeah. the early 2000s. Though it has flatlined in the last couple of years. Um, and on top of that, obviously, they've had a big explosion of international student revenue as well. Um, now, I've, uh, I, I think Sam's brought it up for the, for the viewers, but I pulled out two charts from your book. And the first one on the left is obviously the real revenue by source. And, you know, it's, 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 it's increased quite substantially uh, government funding and then obviously international students. Um, your book also states that Australia actually ranks quite well for public funding, even internationally. Um, and the other interesting finding in your book, which was, I guess, controversial, and some people would be quite shocked, was that international students are actually, to a degree, cross-subsidised by domestic students because, um, now tell me if I'm wrong, I'll let you explain it, you'll explain it a lot better than me, but the crux of it is that domestic students are basically funded on the average cost, so the cost of teaching plus all the fixed costs across the university, so that's, you know, your lecture halls, your pools, your gymnasiums, your canteens, all the stuff that goes into a university, whereas uh, the international students are basically priced on their marginal cost uh, and, and and they don't basically cover the fixed costs, even though they use those fixed costs. Is that we, a lead, lead, baby, let's, let's let Salvatore at it. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair explanation. I'm, I'm yeah. happy for Leith to sell my book. I didn't, yeah. even have to, I didn't even have to hold it up. He did it for me. So uh, the, the blue book, I like to call it, Australia's universities, can they reform? Uh, you know, spoiler alert, the answer is no. Um, look, uh, what does underfunded mean? Uh, public economics theory suggests that a public se- a public service organization can't be underfunded because it's simply supposed to use the funds it receives to uh, serve as the community as well as it can. So, you know, can the if the ADF thinks that it doesn't have enough money for its frigates that it wants, does it hold a bake sale? Does it? rent out its frigates to China in order to generate extra income? Or does it just do the best it can with the frigates it has? Well, you know, it does the best it can. In the same way, you know, we could have universities that have, well, you know, real tutorials, meaning two students per tutorial, or we can have students with 30 student tutorials. You know, 
that's a that's just a funding choice we make. That said, um, Australia's universities are well funded by international standards. So Australia spends 1.1% of GDP, and by the Australian taxpayer spends 1.1% of GDP on its universities. That's higher than the UK. It's higher than the OECD average. It's higher than the European Union average. Uh, U.S. data aren't available for that because U.S. funding is, is very complex. It doesn't appear in the OECD tables. Um, in terms of per student spending, Australia spends is the rank number seven, I believe it is, in the OECD for per student, again, public spending on uh, universities. And again, that's per domestic student. So, you know, that's pretty good. It is Those statistics are warped by the fact that the OECD counts TAFE sector students as higher education, meaning that, you know, although Australia spends very little on its TAFEs, that brings down the average. So its universities are exceptionally well-funded by international standards. Uh, the There was a funding pause uh, during the early 2000s. There, there was a period uh, of the quote-unquote efficiency dividend where first labor and then coalition governments wanted to get an efficiency dividend out of the universities. And so there was a period from, uh, I think it's uh, 2012 through 2017, where uh, government commonwealth funding for universities uh, actually declined slightly. I'm sorry, per student funding uh, declined slightly, but that was about 1% per year. But that was a period when enrollments were increasing at 2% per year. So government funding was going up. It's just that it was there was a literal efficiency dividend. It wasn't the 2% per year the people were demanding, but you know there was some greater, there were efficiencies of scale obtained that way. So government funding in Australia is generous, has always been very generous, is now at or near record levels. Uh, actually, with the big 2020 top-up that governments gave an extra billion dollars to universities, it is at record levels. Um, you know, there's really, you know, don't cry for us in the universities. We're, I mean, we're very well paid compared to people who are struggling to make money in the private sector <laughs> after work for every dollar they get. Right. So that's that's and that's 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 your pitch for your next uh, your next pay review, is it? So, <laughs> Look, uh, luckily, I'm unionized. I am a member of the union. <laughs> After all, it benefits me to get those cost of living increases. But I'm very well aware, having been in the private sector myself before, that um, everyone doesn't get those cost of living increases, and uh, you know we're very well taken care of. Yeah. Well, absolutely. That that I guess brings us to the second uh, the second topic now, because of this underfunding claim um the university sector often claims that uh, you know they need they, they, they've had to massively increase international student numbers because they're underfunded by government and then yeah. international students uh, actually subsidized um you know domestic students that that's the argument now um in your book you present some pretty startling data that shows right. that uh, just before the pandemic hit australia effectively had uh, three times the international students of uh Canada and the UK and about six times uh, the United States. And in fact, the number's actually higher than that because we don't count, say, New Zealand students as foreign. Um, right. Whereas, you know, overseas, they 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 uh, include those sorts of... Uh, permanent you know, residents aren't counted as foreign. And yeah. Australia has a lot of foreign permanent residents. That's right. That's right. So so this 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 gets back, back to the... I guess this gets down to the question, um, why are Australia's international student numbers so high? Is it because we... 
offer more generous work rights and permanent residency than these countries? Because it doesn't seem to me, to me, to me that, that obvious why, why we should have so many compared to these countries. Australia's international student numbers are so high because Australia is underpricing international student tuition. You can look at the chart. There's a chart in the book on uh, the Australian dollar exchange rate versus international student new and new uh, commencements. And it's almost a perfect, it's as close to a perfect correlation as you're going to find in the social sciences. When the Australian dollar is high, international students go elsewhere. When it's low, they come to Australia. Now, when I say they're, uh, we're underpricing, I mean that both in comparative terms, also an Australian degree is much cheaper than a US or Canadian degree. It's on a par with a UK degree for international students, but that's a legacy of the UK's European Union membership. That's likely to change as the UK now charts its own course. Um, we are underpriced if you actually add up the numbers here in Australia. And that's the crucial issue. Domestic students are carrying the international student load. I mean, the universities like to take a picture of Commonwealth support for uh, Commonwealth supported places and compare that to what international students are paying. And they say, oh, international students are paying more. But in reality, the Australian government's overall support for universities should all be credited to domestic students. That is, when the federal government pays for research to be done at universities, it's not paying for that so that people who teach offshore students can be doing research. It's paying for that so that the people who teach Australian students can be research active academics. Right. So if you include that research funding the Australian government spends, uh, the funding for libraries, which goes into the research block grant, well, international students aren't covering any of that. So effectively, if I have a class of 100 students, the Commonwealth is paying for my research, the Commonwealth is paying for my resources, the library, the classroom, everything else, and universities on average are simply stuffing in an extra 50 students into my class. It's that big. I mean, I mean, it's one third of the entire student population is international, which means in my, my 100 student class has become 150 student class. Now those 50 extra students are paying in cash more than what my domestic students pay. But who's paying for their library? The Commonwealth. Who's paying for my research? The Commonwealth. Who's paying for the campus, the infrastructure, the IT? The Commonwealth. As a result, all of that international student money, except for a few variable costs, I had to tack on two tutorials. Okay, those international students are paying the variable costs of those two tutorials. But other than some minor variable costs, the international students well, all that is free cash flow. And that's why Australia's universities have become so addicted to international students, because it generates free cash flow that they can spend on their own priorities, which may not be the public's priorities for their universities. Spot on. And that, that kind of gets back to the, uh, we're not accounting for the, we're not, we're not spreading the, the fixed cost of the universities across those international students. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. Yeah, beautiful. Um, just just uh, moving forward, uh, is is it a fair statement to say that that, that our universities have wasted their funding? Um, now, I've put in two uh, two graphics here um, from you know various sources. One's from Glenn Sharrock, who's a, a Melbourne University uh, researcher, and he showed that the um, the universities have massively increased their investment in sort of properties in the last decade or the decade leading up to COVID. And then I'll also put in a, a quick uh, extract of 
the vice chancellor salaries, which are which basically yeah. you know typically exceed a million dollars, and then you can add all the I guess the administrators and the senior executives, etc. Um, so that so it does seem that they have been spending a lot on the universities, but not a lot of that spending's been going towards actual teaching of students. Is that a fair uh, assessment? This is all very opaque. So it's probably a fair assessment. Do we really know? It's hard to say. I mean, I do know that when the pandemic struck, everyone was worried, including me, about the financial knock-on effects of the reduced international student numbers. In fact, Australia's universities lost more money on their investment portfolios <laughs> than they lost in international student fee revenue. Now, that's shocking. I mean, and that's especially shocking in a year when U.S. endowments, we have data for the U.S., U.S. endowments were flat in 2020, and they increased to more than 20% in 2021. So, you know, U.S. universities rode out the pandemic with no problem. Their biggest problem, actually, in the U.S. was the loss of incidental fees, like parking fees, because students weren't coming to campus, and concessions for student cafeterias. This was the big worry in the U.S. Here in Australia, it seems to have been a deterioration in universities' investment positions. Was that due to poor real estate investments? You guys are the experts on real estate. I don't know. Uh, the universities don't say. Uh, they're very opaque about anything to do with how they, how they spend their money. That said, international student money, it, well, it's not going into my salaries. It's not going into uh, you know, taking casuals and converting them into permanent academics. It seems to primarily be going into university priorities, the number one of which is hiring research-only academics. All these new institutes, all these strategic initiatives you see universities announcing, they sound great. I mean, they look great on the annual report. They, they sound great for a press release. But whenever someone says, we're going to start a new brain institute, we're going to start a new nanoscience institute, you have to ask yourself, with, with what money? Did, did you get a government grant? To start that? Did a philanthropist come and give you $10 million? I mean, th those would be the answers in Europe and the United States, respectively. In Australia, the answer is internal funds. And the only source of internal funds for these kind of grand projects is that free cash flow that comes from international students. Yeah, excellent. And, 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 that, and that then brings us on to the next topic, which I guess... Well, actually, sorry, can we, can oh, sorry. I touch on back on these assets, on the asset side? Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of, uh, I think property sort of over that time period you had there was what, eight years, Leith, where property is basically up 50, 60% in terms of the size. In terms of student numbers, um, I guess looking forward and, and we were talking a little bit about online, offline, I guess the argument is maybe if, maybe some of these universities might have enough property and, and if there's going to be a bit more, a bit more online, offline. Um, uh, so, but 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 on the flip side, um, if you've got lots of cash and, and you like developing stuff, then then buying another buying another building and in the city and, and putting it up sort of I guess appeals to um, to people who just want to grow their empire and and obviously get a get a high salary because of it. You know, if if you're going to get pushed on that, would you would you think uh, universities at any stage would become a net seller of property, or or you think they'll just keep going and accumulating if they can? Well, I don't know if they'll sell, but they'll certainly uh, dispose, by which I mean universities won't be occupying all of the property that they own. Whether they sell those or rent them, I have no idea what kind of decisions they'll make. 
but yeah. we just take up less space than we used to. Um, you know, my own office building has been empty for three years. It's likely to stay empty because most people aren't returning. Now, it's it's like, uh, you know, academics will hold their claws into their offices that they don't go to for the mm -hmm. rest of eternity. It'll, it'll be incredibly difficult to, to get them to hot desk, for example. But yeah. a university that was able politically to push its academics to hot desk could free up tons of office space. Then there's the residential space. Universities, at least my university, the University of Sydney, has been investing in the last few years in building student accommodations. That's mainly to serve Chinese students. And the Chinese student flows, it looks like they're not going to come back in the same numbers they have been. That is, uh, Xi Jinping's China has been very aggressive about trying to repress sources of Western influence in the country. And it seems like international education is on their agenda. We, we haven't seen a big change yet. We've seen a big shift from in-person to online study for our existing Chinese students. Will they come back to Australia in the same kind of record numbers? I'm dubious. Um, most South Asian students, so universities see India as the great replacement, but South Asian students simply can't afford uh, they certainly can't afford these kind of accommodations, and they really can't afford to be studying in Australia in the first place. Mm. Yes. Okay. So, so we've basically uh, seen. So, so we've obviously seen university funding go up massively in the last decade or so. Um, primarily, I mean, obviously, government funding's gone up a little bit, but it's the international student funding that's right. gone up heaps. Um, this then brings us to the next topic: Has teaching quality been eroded now? I've put together some data which I pulled from the Department of Education that shows that the ratio of academic staff, uh, sorry, the, yeah, the, the, the ratio of um, students to academic staff has actually increased quite dramatically over the last right. decade. So we've got basically more students per teacher. Um, at the same time, there's anecdotal, uh, there's been a lot of anecdotal reports about, you know, local students being forced to work in group assignments to basically cross subsidize yep. or help um, non-English speaking foreign students to pass, et cetera. Um, and we've also seen, obviously, there's been lots of complaints about the mass casualization of, of, uh, of, of uh, tutors, et cetera, in university. Um, yeah. Do you think the standards have been dumbed down in pursuit of these high student volumes, both domestic and foreign? Standards at universities have been going down since the time of Plato, and uh, we've all been complaining about it for the last 2,500 years. Um, Look, there have been some examples where standards have been allowed to deteriorate, and the international student narrative is a big part of that. There are programs now that are over 90% international students. Essentially, they're offshore programs being run onshore. Right? They're, they're simply, and I'm not talking at, at fly-by-night, private, I'm talking at University of Queensland, University of Sydney, uh, University of Melbourne are running programs that are over 90% international. Um, in that environment, yes, it's a serious problem that if you happen to be a native English speaking, to the extent that Australians speak English, a native English speaking <laughs> student at a, uh, in one of these classes, in, primarily in business, but also ironically in journalism, <laughs> it's one of the most popular areas for uh, Chinese students. If, if you're the native English speaking student in a group of five, and you're the one native English speaking student, inevitably you have to carry the group. And that's been a major complaint. I mean, this has been, we've had domestic students complaining to the press. It, it's become such a, a big issue. More broadly, though, more students per classroom. Well, 
we should be seeing that, right? We all want universities to be more efficient. What does it mean to be more efficient? It means that each worker has to provide more education. You know, I, as a, an academic, have to be educating more students for the same, uh, you know, for the same amount of time. And the much derided increase in support staff is an entirely appropriate part of that. So, for example, evaluating requests for special consideration due to illness. That used to be my job. Now it's a specialist job, a non-academic specialist who's paid less um, and who does that all day, you know, specializes in that. Well, that's a, an appropriate transition. Now, I'm not saying universities have handled that transition very effectively or very well. I think you know, having been in the private sector and now being in a university, the amount of fat that could be cut at universities is extraordinary compared to any for-profit organization where, uh, you know, in a for-profit organization, if you cut a little fat, that's more money for the rest of us. At a university, if you cut a little fat, that's just more people complaining. Uh, so I'm not saying universities have done this, have navigated this transition well, but it is an appropriate transition. I, I mean, we should be having more students. We should be having higher student-faculty ratios. The question is, are we doing it right? Are we doing it effectively? I think the answer is probably 50-50. Sure. Is it a fair is it a fair assumption to say that the, the universities have siphoned money away from teaching, uh, you know, into these other pursuits? They're not exactly siphoning money away from teaching. What they're doing is, oh, I don't even know the word for it. They're, they're well, maybe what they're doing is siphoning money away from teaching in the sense that the tuition that international students are paying for their classes is not being plowed back into their classes. Make it, to make it a better experience. You know, no, that, that money is being put towards strategic university research initiatives. Uh, but that, that said, I, I mean, students haven't really been complaining about the quality of teaching. The, the student, the, the quilt surveys, the quality indicators in learning and teaching show, you know, mediocre performance, but consistently mediocre performance, you know, roughly 80% of students being satisfied with the quality of teaching. The place where they show a terrible uh, student experience is on, uh, I'm sorry, it's terrible, um, well, terrible student experience is with students' evaluation of the campus experience. They think, you know, where they're saying 80% quality for teaching, they're only 60% qualified with their overall engagement they receive from universities. So they're stuck in these big classes. They don't know people. They're not getting the services they want or need. And that 60% figure collapsed down to below 50% during 2020, you know, when the first year of the coronavirus. We don't have the 2021 numbers yet, but it's probably still down there. So what students are complaining about is not the low quality of their teaching. What they're complaining about is the terrible on-campus experience they're getting, or increasingly the off-campus experience they're getting with the magic word is engagement from the universities. Yeah, I, I note in your book, I included a chart there where student satisfaction plunged at uh, the start of COVID because obviously they went online. So they were- But all, almost all of that decline comes from the engagement decline. Yeah. Now, and, and I'll tell you who's doing it right, Bond University which is not publicly funded, uh, they're at the top. They're the best university in Australia, both in engagement and in overall satisfaction. Um, the public universities are failing on both. Right. Mm. Right. Now, uh, yeah, now th this is a big one. This is, this is one that I've been um, hammering for years because uh, I sort of hate bad statistics. And, you know, 
I read almost every day, it seems to be that, you know, international education is our fourth yeah. biggest export. And <laughs> even yesterday... Uh, I can't yesterday, hear it without laughing. I'm sorry. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I'm exactly the same. Uh, you, you, I think you know my position on it. Um, the yeah. So even yesterday, I there was an article in The Australian, I won't mention the author, uh, it's on Macro Business Today, um, who, who's, who quoted this $40 billion export figure before COVID. It's gone down to $22 billion. He said... And he was championing about how great, you know, how bigger export is. But then in the next sentence, he mentioned that basically all the students, well, most of the students that come here end up working and paying their bills by working in Australia. Now, to me, that is by definition not an export because um, if you come to Australia with not much money, which in the case of, say, South Asian uh, students is more the case, like Chinese students, according to the data which I've presented here, only only around 20% of them actually work in Australia. So they're basically... most of them are a genuine export. They bring their money right. from China. They fund themselves with money from China. That's an export. But for the rest, um, you know, India, Nepal, uh, you know, Colombia, Philippines, Pakistan, etc. They've all got very high labour force participation rates. And it's not that big a bow to draw that they're probably coming here with not much money, working, getting exploited in the labour market, uh, taking these sort of wage theft, you know, lower pay jobs, getting exploited. Yeah. And then using that money they earn to then fund their way in the economy. Now, that's fine if for what it is, but it shouldn't be called an export. And or at least the export figures, in my view, should be should take a significant haircut to reflect um, money earned in Australia, spent in Australia. What, what's what's your view? Uh, do you think I'm I'm right with this assessment? Leith, I'm sure you've never heard this before, but Leith, you are wrong. Mm. By definition. All of the spending of international students in Australia is export earnings by definition. Of course, it's a crazy definition. <laughs> so, you know, and, and the reason we have these crazy definitions is that when we set up the infrastructure for data collection and, and reporting, no one ever envisaged the kind of abuses that would occur. Um, so, yeah, a, about half of the exports generated by Australia's universities are, in fact, uh, spending by international students onshore. Most of that spending is generated by jobs onshore. Even the Chinese students may not have jobs onshore. Much of the spending is Chinese um, money that has been uh, one way or another gotten out of China. Uh, so, you know, relatives of Chinese students who have been able to get their money out of China and they're now spending that money, but the money's already in Australia. So we have actually had an honor student who did interviews with uh, with uh, Chinese students and with their families and found that they're actually being supported by Chinese relatives who have gotten their gains out of China and are now paying for the uh, education of students in Australia. Um, you zeroed in on the worst abuses here. So you, you probably have never had anyone on the channel compliment the ABC before, but I'm going to compliment them. They did a report in 2019 called Cash Cows about yep, international excellent. students. And they, they focused on uh, the abuses at Murdoch University in Western Australia, but this is, happens across the sector, where South Asian students are affected, primarily Indian students, but also from Nepal, are primarily paying university tuition for the purpose of gaining access to the Australian labor market. So that university tuition they're paying is simply part of the visa expense, so to speak, because it gets them access to the Australian labor market. They come to Australia nominally until 2021. They could only work 20 hours a week. Of course, they're working in 
you know, postmodern sweatshop conditions and convenience stores and uh, Uber, uh, uh, Uber Eats deliveries and things like that. Uh, now, of course, 2021, uh, the Morrison government lifted that restriction under pressure from, uh, you know, the Indian community in Australia. So now international students can come and work unlimited hours in, or maybe limited to 40, but in, in effect, it's unlimited legal hours in Australia. Um, now, that's good for people who want to employ low-wage, highly exploited labor who must work or lose their visa, so to speak, if they can't pay their university tuition. But it's it's a pretty raunchy way to support our university research. And again, it's not supporting our universities. Universities don't need the money. It's supporting universities charge up the rankings, their efforts to invest in strategic research. So effectively, we have Indian and Nepali sweatshop workers. And the fact that Nepali students are the third largest cohort in Australia should probably key you in. Why are what, Nepal, this small, poor country in the Himalayas, is the third largest source of international students in Australia? It's all, you know, I learned this word here. I'll take back my insult to the Australian language. It's a rort. <laughs> and it is entirely a, a visa rort for Nepali students to be abused in the Australian labor market. Yeah, and it sort of sort of gets back to my argument for years that I've said that international education has become a bit of a sort of migration scam, and um, you know, in some ways, whether they mean it or not, um, it seems that the universities have become middlemen to the immigration system, uh, sort of clipping the ticket. Yeah. On all Canada has formalized that. Canada has simply made getting a Canadian degree part of a pathway to immigration. Yeah, and they and they want four hundred thousand a year. So um, that, 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 that that actually that, you're, you're you're doing beautiful segues today. That that's a beautiful segue into my next slide. Is can Australia's and you've already touched on this before with the Chinese students, but can Australia's international student numbers be be rebooted to sort of pre-COVID levels? And do we want it? The reason why I ask this yeah. is that, as you just mentioned, uh, Canada has um, greatly loosened its you know its migration requirements. So yeah. it's basically giving permanent residency, it's increased its work hours. So previously, Australia, Australia offered a you know minimum two-year post-study work visa, a graduate visa, and it was the most generous in the world. Canada's matched that, and I might have even beat it now. Uh, the UK's matched it. Uh, I'm not sure about the US, but effectively, Australia shouldn't really have a comparative advantage in this area, but we did because we offered more gener generous work rights, um, you know, the opportunity for permanent residency. Now we've got these other countries which we compete with uh, now offering similar sort of um, benefits, yeah. if, if not better. So do you think Australia can actually um, can actually sort of reboot the previous levels? And obviously, as you mentioned, the, the Morrison government has uh, offered some more incentives. They're going to they're going to give uh, a two year temporary graduate visa, vocational yeah. education and training. They've extended the graduate visas. They've, they've uncapped the work hours and they've waived visa application fees. Do you think we can get it back to where we were before and do we want it? Look, what, what China is to manufacturing, Australia is to university and higher education. It's the, it's the global low-cost provider. We are the cheapest destination. It may not feel that way living in Australia, but we're the cheapest destination for English language uh, international education. And Australia is skimming the bottom of the market. Uh, we have no testing requirements like U.S. universities, you have to take the SAT. Uh, we have very low YELTS requirements. That's the English language testing requirements. Uh, we're cheaper than our competitors. 
uh, that's Australia's strategy. It's bringing in, I mean, I've had Chinese students literally tell me, I ask, well, why did you come to Australia? And they say, oh, I didn't get into Canada. <laughs> right, I didn't get into the UK. Um, Australia is perceived by Chinese students as if you can't get into those other universities, you can always come to Australia. The standards are incredibly low. And I have some evidence on that in the book. Um, still, the bottom end of the market is only so big. Uh, with China not closing down tomorrow, but with China getting more and more strict, I mean, Xi Jinping is not letting people travel internationally. And there's only so long people will stay and people will stay in their online degrees. Will they start a new online degree? Well, you know, that's questionable. And the, the word on the street, you know, the little bits we get um, filtering out of uh, universities and their trade associations is that Chinese enrollments are now starting to decline. The universities have been salivating over India for years. Uh, they are now strongly lobbying to get more Indian students in. And one of the analyses in my book, actually the analysis that started me on this whole journey, my 2019 paper for the Center for Independent Studies, everything was an analysis of how many Indian students could afford to come to Australia. Um, because most people don't realize that you know, India is much poorer than China. And in fact, if you go to the tax database, the world income, uh, the world top incomes database from the uh, from Piketty at uh, University of Paris, they've pulled together tax records for uh, dozens of countries, and you can use that data to study India's income distribution. By my estimate, roughly one eighth, one over eight, one eighth as many Indian families can afford an international education for their students as can Chinese families. Now, India, Indian international student numbers already make up much more than one eighth of China's numbers, more like one third of China's numbers. The implication is that the Indian market, far from being this massive untapped potential, you know, the university administrators are saying China 1.4 billion, India 1.4 billion. India is untapped. It's like, no, 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 no. Among people who can afford a university education, India is already overtapped. That is, more Indians are sending their students abroad at greater financial stress. And we see that in the visa rejections. The visa rejection rates for India are roughly 10 times the visa rejection rates for China. These are based on uh, the family's ability to pay. Um, we see it in the kind of degrees they enroll in. They tend to enroll in less expensive universities. They tend to work more when they're here. Uh, the India market just isn't there. I mean, it may be there in 20 years, but it's not there now. So no, there, there's no other source of enrollments, uh, international enrollments. Universities are simply going to have to learn to live with fewer international students. And like, that can only be good, <laughs> but they're, yeah, well, they're going to squeal about it. Well, I, I, I suppose it gets back to why the edgy migration industries you know, been calling for a more direct link between study and work rights and, and uh, permanent residency because they see that as the carrot, I guess, You're to try and for get government these numbers accelerated. I, I mean, universities are now asking the government to subsidize international student enrollments on the theory that, well, international education is an export industry. The government subsidizes other export industries with export promotion and, uh, you know, special incentives. You know, they should subsidize us. That's crazy. I, I went through all 39 university mission compacts that they have to submit to the Department of Education, Skills and Employment in order to get their government grants. 
Not a single one mentioned export generating exports as one of its missions. <laughs> not a single and, one. And and, and and obviously, it's not generating an export, a genuine export, if they're coming over to work and they're not actually bringing the money with them. So it gets back to that issue as well. So is it really an export industry? You know, um, what yeah. it, it, it does generate lots of, of, of low wage labor for Australia. And for people like me, for people like us, for you know those of us who are wearing nice-ish clothes, who are on Zoom, who are part of the commentariat, yeah, having cheap uh, food delivery cyclists um, is very nice. Having convenience stores open 24 hours is very nice. But it's, it's not very, you know, once you see the kind of uh, exploitative conditions that enable that, well, you have to have second thoughts about it. So it's so it's really a people importing industry than an export industry. Then I'd say I'm, I'm being cheeky, obviously, but uh... it, it 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 is a it, it is an an industry that lowers Australian productivity by bringing in cheap labor instead of pushing companies to invest more in uh, automation, automation in yeah. order to right. raise productivity. Yeah, that's great. Well, I tell you what, you're singing my tune because I've been arguing this for years. So. <laughs> Uh, it's always nice to yeah have a bit of um, you know, I, I learned it from confirmation you. bias. <laughs> <laughs> um, th th there's just another topic I want to get onto, which relates back to all this other stuff. Uh, it's something I've been thinking about for years. It's this whole thing about uh, in, uh, university rankings. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but research expenditure boomed last decade, tripled in yeah. in real terms. Um, now, my understanding of it is it's a the way I see it, it's a bit of a Ponzi scheme in that the universities try and uh, they, they basically bring in all these international students, they get the money from them, they spend it on research to propel them up these rankings, which don't, doesn't necessarily benefit Australia. It can be on, you know, what, what, whatever the rankings uh, systems yeah. grade on. And then that gives them a, a higher ranking, which then allows them to use that as a marketing tool to get more international students. Uh, but it doesn't actually necessarily benefit Australians, that, that research. Is that would you consider it a bit of a sort of virtuous cycle Ponzi scheme like I've described it or am I totally wrong? Um, look, eight of Australia's uh, 38 publicly funded universities are in the global top 100 on the universe, on the global research rankings. 26 Australian universities out of 38 are in the top 100 on some global ranking that you can find. Um, Australia has the greatest universities in the world, if you believe these numbers. Now, of course, that's simply flat out impossible. Right? What universities have done is buy their way up the rankings by purchasing the things that get you points in the rankings. So we didn't even have international university rankings until 2002, when Shanghai Jiao Tong University in China created the first international ranking system with an eye towards uh, benchmarking Chinese universities against uh, the performance criteria they wanted Chinese universities to meet. Now, of course, once you publish ranking, people want to succeed in it. And the result has been that Australian universities have been doing everything possible to succeed on a ranking system set up by a communist government to, <laughs> to evaluate its own universities. Um, that primarily means they've been buying in big science research. And when I say buying in, I mean literally buying in. There, there's a list of highly cited researchers, HCRs, uh, it's maintained by the education uh, data company Clarivate. Uh, they also publish um, uh, citation metrics for rank journals and journal rankings. Um, if you are one of the 3,000 or so academics who's on this list, Australian universities would like to talk to you. 
they will simply buy you in. Australia's proportion of the world's highly cited researchers has increased from um, less than 2% to more than 4% over the last 20 years. And that's not because Australians have suddenly become more productive. It's because Australia has simply gone out and used the money generated by international students to buy in these researchers. Now, it can be very attractive for these researchers because in their home universities, and mostly the U.S., but in the U.S. and Europe, they have to teach. You know, at their home universities, the reason that Harvard wants to have a Nobel Prize winner on staff is so that it can tell its students, come to Harvard, you can study with a Nobel Prize winner. Uh, here in Australia, no, no, come to Australia, we'll just give you a lab, we'll give you the facilities, you can only work with PhD students. One of the real attractions is not teaching students. But then what's in it for Australia? I mean, effectively, a non-Australian academic is doing research in Australia in order to boost the rankings of an Australian university, but that person does not even interact with Australian students. Again, it's kind of this onshore, offshore thing. I mean, why not just let the person stay in St. Louis and just count as part of Australia. It, 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 it makes no sense. Even worse, if you want to talk about it, it's an avenue for backdoor Chinese influence in Australian universities. And, and, and you actually mentioned in your book, uh, you, you made the pretty startling um, revelation, well, uh, observation, should say, that, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but Germany, uh, German and Japanese universities actually rank really poorly in the, um, in the rankings. But I'd, oh, yes. I'd look at... But, but, but I'd look at Germany and Japan and say, well, hang on, those are two of the most productive countries in the world, massive manufacturing sectors, uh, highly advanced economies. How can it be that way ahead of Germany, Japan and China <laughs> and is rivaling the UK for number two in the world in terms of its number of top 100 universities. Yeah, OK, so, 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 so I've got two of these great, you know, very productive, highly advanced countries whose, whose university systems, if you use these rankings, are, are, are rubbish, but they're clearly not because they, you know, given what the economy produces. Absolutely. Mm, interesting. Now, final question. This is sort of a catch all. Um, I guess, how can we improve the university system? Now, this is sort of giving you a, a, a handball to talk about the stuff you talk in your book. But um, yeah. uh, now I, I, I've made the observation. Uh, you know, no, no doubt you'll disagree or you might might disagree that um, it seems to me that Australia has too many young people studying at university and not enough studying in sort of vocational education TAFE. Now, I read a week ago that about half of young Aussies are now studying at uni now. And this comes at a time when for the last 15 years or 20 years, we've had employers constantly whinge about, you know, skills shortages yeah. when despite the fact that university numbers have gone through the roof, which to me suggests there's a skills mismatch in the economy. Yeah. And we perhaps have too many, I guess, uh, academic or university grads and not enough working vocational. Um, what's your view on that? Uh, look, I would turn that back and say, are, are we pumping out too many high school educated people? Uh, too many people going to middle school? I, I mean, after all, all you really need to join the labor force is to be able to read and write. And even that, increasingly, you can get away without the writing. <laughs> yeah. So um, why do we have university education? I, I'm, you know, I'm from the liberal arts. I view universities as liberal institutions in which you know, students can spend three or four years maturing, becoming more better rounded, better, well, just 
slightly older adults, right? We warehouse students in universities. I don't view it as, I don't view my purpose as increasing the productivity of the Australian economy. I view my purpose as education, which I view as valuable in its own right. So in the US, it was very common at the University of Pittsburgh, which is also a global top 100 university. It was very common at the University of Pittsburgh for students to do a four-year university degree and then do a vocational certificate, right? I mean, why can't a plumber why can't an electrician, why can't a, you know, a, a truck driver have a university education? We, we all believe they should have high school educations, but that's not necessary. Why do they have to do year 10 English in order to be a truck driver, right? So um, I, I disagree with the premise there. Um, I, it's not the business I'm in. Uh, that said, you know, we could certainly do things a lot better. <laughs> and if we were to focus on educating Australian students, that would be a massive improvement. I mean, international student numbers have to come down. They're just yeah. overwhelming. I mean, uh, on, on international scale, they're, they're just off the charts uh, internationally. I mean, 2%, in 2019, 2% of Australia's entire population was international students. Uh, it, one in five people of university age in Australia you know, of one in five people age, age 18 to 25 was an international student. And, and if you come to a center city like Sydney or Melbourne, it's probably more like one third of all young people are international students. Like I said, we have programs that are 90% and more international. That's just got to end. Um, but if we, cut, if, we, if we were to retrench universities back to their mission of educating Australian students, and there are several ways to do that, we could put on some caps. So I think by international standards, having a cap of, say, 15% international for an entire university, no more than 20% in any program, so that if you have a five-student group, only one is an international student, um, probably 5% from any one country, uh, those would probably be good caps, again, based on international comparisons. Uh, you know, more than half of all of Australia's universities would be the most international university in all of the United States if it was in the US. Well, that's a bit extreme. I'm not talking to Sydney and Melbourne. I'm talking Charles Sturt, <laughs> you know, and um, uh, Murdoch and stuff. So that's got to come down. Um, but we also should see every academic teaching. I, I mean, the rise of research only positions is a real threat. Um, now, it's good for university quote unquote productivity if university productivity is measured in producing journal articles. If you want to increase productivity in my department, make me research only, hire a teacher to replace my teaching. But then why am I there at all? Uh, I mean, why should the government fund me? Well, they might fund me to write books criticizing the government, but why should the, why should the government fund me to pursue my own personal research objectives? Um, the reason historically has been that I'm going to teach Australian students. So requiring everyone to teach would be, I think, the most important single staffing reform we could have at universities. Um, and then we need to change the government funding model to stop, to stop incentivizing the crazy strategies universities pursue. Beautiful, and, that, and, that, and that's obviously all explained in the book in uh, in, in great detail. So um, everyone, get on that now. That that uh, thanks very much. That that sort of rests my case. I think Damien's got a few questions for you, so um, well, I'll hand it to Damo. 
Yeah, I just want. To, well, I thought it was worth, worth touching. So you had some, a piece out in the um, in the Australian a couple of weeks ago, just on on the Ukraine situation, and right. so some some thoughts there. I guess if you wanted to give a quick quick summary, I guess, and 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 then where that's developed, you know, recent developments, uh, how that sort of coloured your thinking. Um, I've I've been a visiting professor in uh, both Poland and Ukraine several times, and I've lectured at, at many Ukrainian universities. Uh, Look, I, I think Ukraine has been suffering much more from American warmongering, and I say this as an American, uh, than it has suffered at the hands of Russia. Now, I certainly don't endorse Russia's support for breakaway regions in Ukraine and for the dissolution of Ukraine, I, 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 occupation of Crimea. I don't support any of that. But the inflammatory language about, you know, Tuesday, Russia is going to invade. No, no, it's going to be Thursday. Uh, get all of the diplomats out. I mean, when Australia pulled all of its diplomats from Ukraine, that sends a message to business people, to tourists, to people who are you know, really crucial for the Ukrainian economy, that things are so dangerous that they shouldn't go near the country. In reality, in the 80% of Ukraine that is not Russian occupied, um, life is very normal. My Ukrainian friends and colleagues tell me life is normal. There's no sense of impending doom. Uh, you know, no one is seriously concerned that Russia will send the tanks in and overthrow the government. Now, I'm not saying it's not going to happen. I'm saying that it's not productive for us to warmonger over it. It's mainly something that is just, well, playing for U.S. television audiences um, rather than uh, supporting the people of Ukraine. I mean, when you have the president of Ukraine himself asking Joe Biden to stop talking up war uh, that should be a signal yeah yes yeah, so it's a uh if, if you're particularly interested in a in a, in a distraction from domestic issues then then this is something good to talk about it's, absolutely um, yeah which is uh meanwhile was Biden who greenlit the the north stream 2 pipeline <laughs> so one of the big controversies and, and then we've just had sanctions on the north stream 2 pipeline imposed or, or germany saying it won't, won't continue it uh, it was it was uh donald trump who had effectively prevented the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which connects Russia directly to Germany, circumventing Ukraine and Poland conveniently. Uh, Donald Trump had put sanctions on it, saying that this was a you know, German-Russian attempt to cut Eastern Europe, Europe out, a Russian attempt to uh, break apart the, solid, the, the solidarity of Europe and the Western alliance. Well, yep. you know, Biden was the one who said, no, no, it's all right, you know, Go ahead with it, and that only lasted a year before you know. Now we've seen it; it it just has to, it has to go. Yeah, well, and it, and it's I guess from our perspective, it's it's effectively putting a bit of a um, you know we've been notionally calling it the uh, the Putin carbon tax. You know, it's yeah. a, we've we've upped the price of of energy you know, right throughout Europe and and uh, oil globally, um, and so um, yeah, well, it's sort of high oil prices fund Putin's regime. I, I mean, Russia is a petrostate. Um, Russia's government funding comes disproportionately from oil sales. When oil was down at $40 a barrel, Russia was severely struggling, was cutting back. It was delaying even military acquisitions. Now that oil's up over $100 a barrel, Putin's flush with funds and can engage in foreign adventurism. If you really want to take down Vladimir Putin, the number one thing to do is open the taps on U.S., Canadian, Australian oil. Mm. Yes. And guess. 
Yeah. Excellent. Um, now, look, I, I, um, that's probably the only, the main one. You know, we've obviously taken a lot of your time already, and um, we'd love to have you back on again at some stage to, to talk about some more of the, uh, some more of the economic um, factors. But Next guess, week, I'm all yours. <laughs> I guess I guess the first thing we should do is uh, give you a bit of an opportunity though to uh, to plug your book and where can people where can people buy it? And, oh, um, you guys have been so generous about plugging the yeah. book already. Look, it, it, Australia's universities can it reform. It's available at all the usual places. Just go online. If you want to give me more money, go to the publisher, which is Ocean Reef Publishing, or just go to australiasuniversities.com and uh, you'll find it. But it's pretty easy to find, and uh, you know, appreciate anyone who picks it up. Excellent. Thanks, Sam. Back to you. Excellent. Okay. So now, now we've got the viewer question of the week. Uh, this is for viewers to have some discussion in the comment section over the coming days. So the question of the week is, should universities be in the export business? So feel free to post your thoughts and engage with us and some other viewers over the coming week. Uh, so Damien, I'll hand it back to you for the investment implications. Yeah. So I just wanted to just want to highlight, I guess, that we're um, yeah, we're still quite uh, quite conservative in terms of our in terms of our outlook at the moment. We're sitting on lots of cash, lots of uh, lots of bonds within the portfolio. Um, so we've been building that up, and uh, I think for you know, we we published our performance report recently, just talking about the amount of uncertainty and and how we're starting to lean back against some of the some of the current trends. So uh, in particular, you know, we've got uh, particularly high. Uh, commodity prices at the moment. There's a there's a pretty big theme in in Wall Street, which is uh, the only way possible way to save yourself from inflation is to go out and buy commodities um, as an investment. And, and what we're arguing is there's a financialization loop there where um, you know effectively people, investors buying commodities is helping to push commodities up. Um, plus, there's been a number of um, you know, the same things in terms of the same sort of supply chain issues and, and things like that. That's that sort of all pushing in that same direction. Meanwhile, we have um, the world's biggest um, consumer of commodities, the the Chinese house building sector, is is um, keeps reporting lower and lower starts, uh, and obviously going through um, some some major uh, issues in terms of the uh, trying to trying to realign their their economy to 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 have building there uh, be at a better at a more, more more normal level, and so that's one area which we're um, we're very much avoiding in terms of um, uh, structured in our portfolio. And so, um, yeah, I might leave it at that the, and um, we can talk about that a, a, a more next week. Back to you, Sam. Thanks for that, Damien. Um, so, yeah, that almost wraps us up. Leith, have you got any any last thoughts you want to leave us with? No, no, just, uh, yeah, thanks thanks for coming on, uh, Salvatore. It's uh, great to catch up again. And, um, yeah, I really enjoyed your book. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Excellent. Um, so, yeah, Damien, just want to thanks for thank you for uh, your insights as always. Um, and Leith, thanks for coming on the show again. We really appreciate you uh, giving your valuable time and expertise. And uh, Salvador, it was a pleasure having you on the show again. Uh, thanks for joining us and best of luck with your new book. Thank you. Uh, so we do welcome your feedback on the show, especially in regards to suggestions for future topics. If you do have any ideas, please drop it in the YouTube comments below or send us an email at contact at nucleuswealth.com. Just a reminder, this is general advice and does not take into account your personal situation. If you do want to discuss your personal financial situation, please go to our website at nucleuswealth.com and book a call with me or the team. Don't forget to like the video now. And finally, if you know of anyone that might get some value out of today's episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could please share it with them. 
Also, if you'd like to uh, see more of our previous episodes and content, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash content. And to stay up to date with news from us, you can also follow us on all social media. So from myself, Damien, Dave, uh, sorry, Leith and Salvatore and the rest of the team at Nucleus Wealth, thanks for watching and we look forward to seeing you next time and bye for now.